Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for finding the Toronto Today podcast. Great to have you with us and finding us on this wet Monday. It's October the 25th. We start out talking about the new restrictions in the province of Ontario. Whether there's at all, hey, I'm excited as the next person for the idea of the end of this and the end of that. We're a lot more closer to the end of the pandemic than we are in the middle. I keep saying that. Hopefully the more times I actually say it, the more people will believe it. Uh, So we'll talk about that. Uh, Joe Cressy says no more politics for him. After the next year, he'll fulfill his term as city councillor, but he isn't running for mayor and he isn't running for any other public office. We talk about the toll the pandemic's taken on all of us, but as well for politicians and talk about, yeah, when vaccine mandates are no longer necessary or passports to get into places that people want to go, and that is less than three months away, what does that do to a highly intense vaccine campaign that the city of Toronto uh, is putting on? Dr. Michael Warner, we haven't had him on in a while. He hasn't done much radio in a while, but he chose us to come on with to talk about exactly that, Friday's restrictions announcement. So we will do that with him. Simon Poulter on a 20-year anniversary of the iPod. Yeah, yeah, the iPod's been around 20 years. It's probably unrecognizable given how attached we are to our phones. But back then when the iPod came out, We didn't carry things like that around. We talk about the evolution of it and our Fantastic Four debate, which has to do with vaccines and kids, whether we need them in pediatricians' offices and not mass vaccination clinics. All to come on Toronto Today. Okay, I know it sounds like I'm shilling for the Toronto Star hard this morning. I mean, my wife works for another newspaper in the city, and here I am praising the Star. But when they do good stuff, they do good stuff. There's some op-eds I could throw some darts at. Uh, Absolutely. How much time you got? Well, we don't have that much time. Uh, But here's the headline, because I mentioned the Christine Dobby-Doug Smith work on uh, the Masai Ujiri story from this morning. But here's what I saw yesterday in the Toronto Star, the headline. Jennifer Pagliaro, David Ryder did great work here. The man who won't be mayor, why one of Toronto's youngest and most effective political leaders is calling it quits. And that man who won't be mayor uh, joins me right now. I'm always appreciative of his time, Toronto City Councillor Joe Cressy. If you realized people were going to say such nice things about you, would you have reconsidered this, uh, Joe? It's... uh, this is like nobody knows what their funeral will look like, but but this is you know this has probably been uh, really nice to hear such nice things about what you've been and, and what you've done well. Well, listen, Greg, it, it, it's nice <laughs> to be here. And <laughs> listen, my, my father always had a line, which was, "You have to be strong enough to join the fight, but wise enough to know when to leave it." And and for me, when it comes to elected office, uh, my time is coming to an end. And and I did I did share that news publicly this weekend that I'm I'm leaving elected office. I'm not running for city council. I'm not running for mayor. In fact, I'm not running for anything. And and I have to tell you, it feels pretty good to to have made that decision and shared it publicly. The pandemic, you've been uh, front and center for it. Anybody that's on the Toronto Board of Health would be. Um, and I feel like, look, it's fried all of us. But I would make the case, and I've said this about federal and provincial politicians, the most recent recently elected ones, none of them signed up and and decided, well, I want to be a politician during a pandemic. But boy, has it taken extra emphasis and work and fatigue and and struggle. Um, talk about that a little bit, how, uh, you know, you, you, you think, well, what's a worst case scenario that'll happen during my three years, four years, six years? Um, the pandemic trumps everything. Well, certainly. Listen, I, I was elected seven years ago, and I, I spent the first five years working on city building projects, creating new initiatives. It was kind of what I uh, was elected to do. And of course, two years ago, uh, the pandemic began, and and that changed everything for governance at the city. It was this has been a hopefully once in a in a generation, once in a lifetime experience. And listen, Greg, I, I would be the last to tell you that politicians 
that any of us are on the front lines. We are not. You know, people, I have been privileged and lucky throughout this pandemic with a house and a job and health, but I'm not going to kid you. I mean, it's been 646 Mm -hmm. straight days and it's taken an emotional toll. And so this pandemic for a lot of people, you know, people working in hospitals, people working in healthcare, people on the front lines doing all sorts of work. But, you know, to be honest, a lot of decision makers at the political level, too, it's been a grind. Many of us, you documented a few years ago, um, talking about anxiety and panic attacks, and I, I have such praise and and uh, awe and admiration for you for talking about it in, in this article, too, that there were times during the pandemic when what was happening mentally and emotionally started to have effect on you physical, all, physically. All of us who have had that happen at any point in time, regardless of circumstances, I think appreciate the, the honest conversations we're starting to have about that, that maybe we just didn't feel like we could 15, 20 years ago. Oh, listen, I mean, the degree to which mental health has as a discourse is is now out in the open in the public. But more importantly, because it's in the public, that many of us are starting to understand it in our own experiences. I mean, I I, it's true. I visited, you know, the ER three times over the last uh, two years, Uh, every time thinking I was having a heart attack. Well, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I was dealing with panic attacks. And, and, you know, my story is not unique. I mean, so many of us are unsure what these physical symptoms we're experiencing. And often what we need is treatment for mental health. And, and so, you know, I, like many, I've experienced my own struggles with mental health. I've been open about them. But I think the more open we are, the more not just does it break down the stigma, but it also helps us to understand maybe I need some help too. Because, you know, at at every, for nearly every, all of us, at some point, we will need some help for a mental health challenge. We've been talking about so much this morning and and based on the city, you know, the the goal um, for people who work on the show is to to have, you know, a relatable show and, and have issues that deal with Toronto based on, you know, things all of us deal with. And when I think about the weekend, I hear about, Four people that have been, well, more than four people that have been shot, but four people have lost their lives from gunfire since Friday night. Uh, we, we've we got an, what some consider an epidemic of car accidents as well. We had two horrific stories happen on the same day, a day with, with no bad weather involved to a 17-year-old girl and an 80-year-old man. When you think about those issues, Joe... Um, what can what can we do? None of these are easy answers for the mayor, for city councilors, for the cops, for anybody going into the next half decade, decade in terms of making these stories less prominent. Well, listen, I mean, there's no question that in this 21st century, we have some big issues to contend with as a city and, and issues that cannot be solved in the blink of an eye. Uh, they're fundamentally redesigning our streets to make them safer in a growing city. That's not just about putting up stop signs. It's about fundamentally redesigning them, tackling the scourge of gun violence and dealing with the roots of violence. And, and I have to tell you, what the biggest thing for me, which has been exposed throughout this pandemic, is the growing and glaring inequities. The fact that so many in our city are struggling so deeply. These are big issues. And and. Listen, as somebody in an elected office, I believe, I believe deeply in the power of government as a force for good that can lead the change in so many of these areas. But I also believe when it comes to government that you want people who are going to get in, do good, and then move on to contribute elsewhere. And, and that's a foundational view I have around politics. It's, you know, I've loved my time at City Hall. I believe I've contributed to change, but we have much more to do. 
it just will be others stepping up into the elected arena to lead that charge. Because uh, I think politicians get in, do good, get out. When I taught broadcasting students, Joe, I would ask them sometimes, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? Um, and that's an easier question to ask somebody who's 19, 20, 21, and they're career oriented. It's a harder question to ask you, but I will ask you the never say never question. Is it possible that you need to step away, count to 10, spend time with a young family, and there will be a callback at some point for politics? Would you ever rule it out? The, the current mayor right now is 30 years older than you. There are politicians who run for office in their 60s and 70s. you got a lot of runway left to make a difference politically. Listen, I mean, I'm a 37-year-old man, and I've got a, I have a two-year-old kid, and and so my priority, uh, frankly, right now is to make up for a lot of the time I've lost in the last number of years as a good father. Um, you said that line, you know, never say never. I would never say never, but I'm leaving elected office with the hope and intention not to return to elected office. And I say that sincerely. I, mm-hmm. Listen, I come from a family, a, a privileged family, where both of my parents served on city council. They both left after two terms. Both saying never say never, and neither came back. And they lived fulfilling lives. They contributed greatly to our city and society. And they were also presidents in my life. And so I will never say never. But, you know, for me, I, elected politics has, has run its course. And you know, I'm looking forward to figuring out what the next challenge is. I know we're both tight for time here. When that announcement comes from the province Friday, you've been front and center with a vaccine campaign with the city as well. It feels like you're out every weekend. And I thank you for that. But when you see the Ontario government say we'll lift proof of vaccination requirements, by January 17th. I mean, that's that we're talking 11 weeks. Does that defeat some of the goals or contradict some of the goals with getting up to 90% people vaccinated? Well, I, I think very clearly the province is trying to provide a light at the end of the tunnel that this beating this pandemic uh, does not mean continuing to live endlessly with with restrictions and passports and other measures. And I think they are they are seeking to provide that light at the end of the tunnel that we all need to achieve that, to get to that light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we need to stay on this remarkable vaccination course that we're on. Um, you know, you mentioned getting to 90 percent. We're at 87 percent first dose in our city today. But five to 11 year olds, we're about to roll out the largest five to 11 year old campaign for vaccines in our country's history. So let's get to that light at the end of the tunnel. I like that as a target. I like targeting something optimistic to, to allow us to put this behind us. But it doesn't mean the work's over. <laughs> That's where we just got to continue grinding it out. One neighborhood, one needle at a time. So uh, that's where I think the the kids have to make the difference to 90%. Because if I do the math, if you do the math, I'm not sure we get to 90% with just 12 plus. It has to be a strong 5 to 11 turnout for vaccine. Because we've gone, I think, 8% in three months. I saw we hit 75% back in mid-August. And now we're late October. Um, So that's that's two and a half months later. We could be in January before 90% unless there's a good kid turnout. Yeah, listen, it's... You know, Toronto's vaccine rates are now a we are one of the world leaders amongst major cities and we're not stopping. I mean, this is the slower phase. I mean, gone are the days of the 27,000 doses at Scotiabank Arena. We're doing 2000 doses a day at 30 different clinics. And so this is this is the phase we're in. Um, But it is remarkable the degree to which Torontonians have stepped up in it. And so reaching this youth push when five to 11 year old vaccines are approved 
is this is going to be a different type of campaign because, you know, it's one thing for a parent to say, I'm going to put a needle in my arm. It's another thing for them to say, I'm going to put a needle in my kid's arm. And that requires different outreach, different engagement, and also different different clinic setups because you're dealing with five-year-olds. I think so. Joe, thanks very much for the time this morning and uh, congratulations on the the piece you're at with your decision. I, I hope we get to talk a lot within the next 12 months. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you, Craig. All the best. All right, 20 years ago, over the weekend, Apple put out the iPod. We didn't know what that was going to mean long-term, but it transformed Apple. It certainly brought them back, battling with Microsoft, if you're into that kind of Coke, Pepsi, uh, Apple versus Microsoft stuff. But it also changed our lifestyle. Simon Poulter is a music blogger, uh, former music writer, wrote about it over the weekend, and he joins me now. Simon, this was very much... Um, a big question mark as to whether it would be successful and, and why Apple even wanted to do it, wasn't it? But there was something about it then, which we all now know is, is all part of the Apple secret sauce. You know, it was, it was this beautifully designed little thing. That when you saw Steve Jobs stand there in this press conference producing this little white and silver box from his jeans pocket and with the whole slogan, a thousand songs in your pocket, you know, I thought, this, this rung a bell. This really did ring a bell with me that maybe there was something something interesting in this. Well, we'd started, my recollection is um, the Napster era, right, was starting around the late 90s and people were were obviously ripping music illegally. The, be- the most compact music we had at the time, Simon, was probably, uh, you know, a Discman, a, a CD Walkman. We, we were just, I yeah. think we, we were getting also that era where CDs were getting installed you'd buy a new car and there'd be a cd player in it before you had to take this i remember buying one this terrible contraption that was a cd player hooked up to a blank weird cassette thing and it had a lot of wires and you would put the cassette thing in your cassette player and you could play your cd so it's pretty primitive and then this comes along and and uh, uh, it should be pointed out not just the ipod but itunes comes along and and that I think that really struggled to get off the ground at first because people, and we still do this now, don't we? With with a lot of media, we say, why would I pay for it if I can get it for free? And that's the battle I think Apple and uh, and and you know Jobs had early on was the the Napsters of the world, the Kazaz of the world, were giving it to you for free to put on a CD. You didn't need to go to the iTunes store and buy it. And you had the beginning of that year in, in January. That was when... Um, I think Apple then launched iTunes, which was then simply uh, what Apple does best, which is they take someone else's software and and turn it into an Apple application. So that was something that they launched for for the for the the iMac, which I guess must have been what well, by then that the the old classics of jelly colored iMac was uh, a couple of years old by then. So. And in fact, if I remember rightly, the first iMacs were launched without an optical drive, without a CD drive, and then they started to introduce them. Apple were kind of starting to do the thing that Napster had done, which was basically bait the music industry, because the music industry obviously was still very fiercely protective at the time of, of anything that could, could, um, could, could impact copyright. But the idea of iTunes, you know, rip your CDs, make your own playlists, fantastic. Um, but then I think what happened was that Apple saw that you know the MP3 player market, which had been around I think since the mid '90s, um, you know there's there's a, a great quote in Walter Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs, where apparently Jobs said to his executive team, you know, all these MP3 players truly suck, or words to that effect. <laughs> um, build me my own, and that's how the the iPod 
began its its creation. And I think he'd set a very ambitious target, as Steve Jobs did, of getting his team to build something for launching in October 2001 for the Christmas selling season of 2001. So it went very, very quickly. But it was based on the fact that, you know, what was out there was, in his opinion, as a music fan, not very good. Um, so the iPod came came out of that. Simon Poulter is joining us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto uh, on Toronto Today. Uh, his blog post about it, a great essay about the 20th anniversary of the iPod, is on simonpoulter.blogspot.com. We don't see it then, Simon, changing music retail. It did right away. And and I didn't spot it in my own self until, um, you know, probably a year into it when I'm realizing this is how I am. Per- it's not even a 50-50 split. It might be a 90-10 split. If I can get it digitally, I'm getting it digitally. And if I can't, I guess I'll order a CD, but then I'm putting that CD right onto my hard drive and I'm carrying it around on my iPod. But we don't see that then, do we, in the first few years of the 21st century that music retail is going to is going to blow up over this, do we? No, not at all. I, I mean, I, I remember you know going out to Tower Records buying CDs like I would normally. What you did with that CD afterwards was was a bit strange because, you know, I might put it in the car, mm-hmm. but the minute I had the ability to put it onto a portable digital player um, via my, my PC, I mean, if you think about it now, it's all very clunky, but then you had to rip the CD and then connect your, your portable player to the computer. Now, obviously, we, we listen to all that sort of stuff via, via streaming services. But back then, I, and I, I, I've always been wedded to physical media. I mean, it's just me. You know, maybe I, I'm not one of those people that likes the convenience of streaming even now. Um, but back then, that's what you did. You, you, you bought your CDs and, and you got them home in a way, kind of like the, the old days when you used to buy a record and, and immediately home tape it. Um, to put on your portable device. And I think we used to borrow um, CDs from friends who we'd say, I don't want to spend $20. Um, let's trade a couple CDs and I'll put them onto a 90 minute cassette on each side. And I was a cassette yeah. guy way more than a vinyl guy. Cause I thought they're portable. I can play them in the car. Um, they're smaller. I can keep more of them on a shelf. Um, and, and I, I do think people like you and I, and probably a lot of our listeners chose one path or the other, um, either records staying with records as long as they could, or going cassette before the CD revolution. And you're right. W- that's what we did was we made it more compact for us. But I, And I think you, you hit on this a little bit earlier, Greg, in that I think in-car entertainment plays a big role with a lot of these formats. Um, you know, when I, I, I worked for Philips, um, when I first joined Philips, I was, I was involved in a, a, a short-lived um, product called Digital Compact Cassette, which is basically a cassette, but digitized. I mean, I think the, the main benefit of it, if I remember right, it was that you, you had better quality of recording. But that was envisaged as something that Philips would then sell into the car industry and never did. Um, CD came along. And of course, you know, you, even even now, cars are, are still being supplied with CDs, even if CD ownership is, is starting to tail off. I think you point this out also uh, in your piece is that all we used to be able to do while we were on the go um, and, you know, in uh, in big cities like Toronto, like London, uh, Paris, New York, you know, there's there's so much uh, travel that isn't in cars. You needed your headphones and a device and you wanted variety. And the idea of watching anything 
that that barely existed 10 years ago and it sure didn't exist 20 years ago so the audio option if you wanted to bring a book if you wanted to read a book you had to bring a book there wasn't a book you could read on a device so they really captured the market in that in that audio was about the only thing that was transferable video w- watching a television show or a movie impossible till uh about 2008 maybe 2009 and for sure books right around the same time so kind of Kind of the music industry um, had everybody, uh, you know, had everybody by the short hair saying, we're your option if you're commuting. Absolutely. But I think this is one of the things where if you put the iPod into historical context, um, I don't know. And I don't think anybody could say if when Apple launched the iPod 20 years ago that they knew they would be going into phones at some stage. Mm-hmm. But you can probably draw a direct line between the iPod and the iPhone. Um and if you look at what the iPhone did, um, it was it was the first smartphone that really worked. I mean, there'd been other smartphones before it. You know, Nokia had 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 one um, sometime before the iPhone came along. But I think the iPhone, in its in what I like to think is the direct lineage from from the iPod itself. All of a sudden, you've got all these different platforms coalescing onto one device. You've got TV on there if you want it. You've got you can watch films on it if you want it. And that, I think, also was a, a, was a major step change in, in our cultural life as well. Thoughts from Simon Poulter. Really interesting stuff about where the iPod led us to. Uh, and at first, yeah, we're thinking, well, I got to plug headphones in. This isn't this doesn't really connect me at all to the outside world. This is just something that I can, you know, accumulate music on. And that's what we try to do. It's changed a lot. It changed retail, music retail. It changed every bit of our communication from that point on. On our way back, what happened when before the seven o'clock news? Lots still to do on Toronto today. I want to get into car accidents, uh, talk about the tragedy that happened last week and another one over the weekend, and alarming numbers. Everyone says we got to fix it, and I agree, but I'm just not sure how. I want to take some time at 7 o'clock and ask you that very, very crucial question. Not just for you, but kids, parents, everybody has to be aware of the problem. So let's document the problem and figure out how to fix it together. I didn't get a chance, obviously, to react to Friday's restrictions. We seemed like we were talking about it all weekend, um, talking about it anecdotally with parents. Um, had a con- couple of conversations that were interesting yesterday about it. And uh, I wanted to have our next guest on, who's been front and center. Um, and oftentimes, he has told you, we need to do this. We're a little late in doing it in this province. And then there's a subsequent follow-up and a backpedal and a reaction to it. Dr. Michael Warner joins me on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. It's great to have you on. Thanks for the time. Thanks for having me. Um, Today uh, seems just less concerning to a lot of people uh, than, say, what is forecast for mid-January. We're going to lift restrictions for restaurants and bars. We've had a good fall. There isn't a single school in Toronto that's closed right now. So, And maybe in spite of itself, maybe. But I know you might have had the same thought I did on on um, on Friday, and that's putting a date as opposed to um, data benchmarks to um, get rid of the vaccine, you know, check in or the vaccine passport is really concerning because the unvaccinated will just say, well, I've done some I've done some holding out so far. I've only got 10 more weeks to go. And so I don't need to get vaccinated. Yeah, so Greg, we are in a really good spot in Ontario. I think we need to acknowledge that that the government, to their credit, has gone slowly and deliberately, and uh, Dr. Kieran Moore as well, as well, and we're in excellent shape. The ICUs 
have about 140 COVID ICU patients instead of 891, which was our wave three peak. We're able to do all non-COVID related care, get through our backlog slowly, but steadily. And as you mentioned, schools seem to be safe and and businesses have been allowed to open and uh, the capacity restrictions that are being changed today actually don't have a big problem with. I also think that there's a, a, an interesting inducement in that uh, businesses that didn't typically require the vaccine certificate, should they uh, require it, they're allowed mm-hmm. to have full capacity. I think that works in the same direction as, a, as the desire to get more people vaccinated. However, on January 17th, as you mentioned, you know, it's proposed that vaccine certificates in restaurants, casinos, um, gyms will be eliminated. And I think that works against the government's plan to try and get as many people vaccinated. And uh, that's the part I have uh, concern with, although uh, Premier Ford has provided himself with an opt out should the conditions on the ground change at that time. Yeah, it feels like it's it's there's a chicken and egg factor, isn't it? Because I think people are out and about and you know, um, willing to do more things. They say, I'm fully vaccinated. I'm feeling fantastic. Of course, if I was sick, I'd stay home. But Dr. Warner, the reason people are out there is they know they'll be in an environment with almost universally vaccinated people. That could be a Raptors game. That could be a crowded bar and restaurant on a Friday night. Once that's taken away by January, maybe we've built up enough confidence and we're that much closer to an element of herd immunity, which we thought we'd get to in the summer before Delta. But at the same time, there's going to be people saying, I don't want to be among unvaccinated people. I've got a I've got a 76 year old mom that feels that way right now. She's going to do a lot less in January than she is right now. For sure. It actually may work against uh you know, the economic reopening and that the majority of the population, at least eligible population, is vaccinated. And part of the reason why they're willing to uh, patronize businesses may be because of the comfort level they feel because they know that everyone else is vaccinated. And then all, all of a sudden you take that away and a certain segment of the population will be fine. You know, that's OK with me. But others may say, you know what? But, you know, let's just get through the winter and see how things turn out. Maybe I won't go to that restaurant. Maybe I won't go to the gym as often, et cetera. So the truth is it's impossible to set a timeline for a biological problem because uh, we have no idea what's going to happen in January. That includes me. I have no idea mm-hmm. whether there'll be a wave five, a blip, whether things will continue to go really well. It's really hard to know. We don't know how bad influenza season is going to be either. So there are a lot of variables at play. And But the, the part that bothers me the most is that for those who are vaccine hesitant but could be persuaded if their life is made more difficult by the vaccine certificates can just dig their heels in for the next 11 12 weeks at least in their mind and say you know i can make it through to the other side and we also don't know whether you know by january 17th vaccines will be available for our 5 to 11 year olds and we also don't know what the uptake will be so that's that's a variable as well dr michael warner our guest on toronto today with greg brady on global news radio 640 toronto uh you know without revealing too much your workplace other workplaces uh healthcare facilities that you know of how much tension is there still about who is fully vaccinated and who has rejected these shots? We still don't have a mandate for healthcare workers, uh, and we see it all over the place in the United States. That they do. Um, it, it 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 can't be something that goes undiscussed. Yeah, I mean, my position on this on this has not changed from I think August when I started commenting on it. If you're taking care of patients in a hospital, long term care home. Part of your obligation by serving the public is to make sure that you do not uh, uh, potentiate harm to the people that you care about or care for, which means you need to be fully vaccinated. End of story. If you create a situation where 
certain facilities have mandates, others don't. Certain hostels have policies, others don't. It's a patchwork. It actually could mean mm-hmm. those who chose not to get vaccinated could congregate in those facilities where vaccine mandates are not required, which puts those patients at excess risk compared to the average patient. If they just did it across the board, some people will, will quit their job, and, and that's unfortunate, but you don't have a right to care for people. Um, it's, it's a privilege. It is a job. Of course, I don't want people to be fired or lose their livelihood, but it's no one's right to work as a nurse or an orderly or as a doctor uh, to care for people. But we do have an obligation, just like I have to wash my hands when I walk in the room, get a TB test every year, why surgeons have to get HIV tests uh, if they do blood-borne procedures. It's all in the name of protecting patients, and that should be paramount. Dr. Michael Warner uh, joining us. I, I just get a message from a listener as we're speaking, and uh, she writes about the benchmarks in the Bay Area, and I'll list them to you. The Bay Area will lift um, a, uh, a mask mandate. This is a mask mandate, not the vaccine mandate. If 80% of the jurisdiction is fully vaccinated, if hospitalizations are low and stable, and they want to wait eight weeks after the COVID-19 vaccines available and authorized for five to 11 year olds. And I've said the same thing. It's one thing I, I know the time's not right right now, but I, I wondered what you thought of a late March date. I don't love the arbitrary date. I want it to be based on our data and our benchmarks. But of course, we all want our masks off kids, off fully vaccinated kids eventually. Of course we do. You know, I have no idea. I think, that, you know, the next big story in Canada will be what parents choose to do for their 5 to 11-year-olds. I know what my decision will be, but that's a personal decision mm-hmm. for parents. And there could be fully vaccinated parents who choose not to get their children vaccinated or choose to wait. And you know, that's the most significant reservoir of, of COVID uh, in society among unvaccinated children. It could be circulating. They fortunately rarely get sick, but some do get sick. Some do die. I mean, which is to me should be a never event. Uh, so that that's where the rubber hits the road. That's, you know, to get past this, we need most people vaccinated. We also need the world vaccinated because Canada is not hermetically sealed from the rest of the world. So mm. we are not at the end of this. Things are really good in Ontario now. Let's enjoy it. But let's uh, just I think we need to set our expectations for what things will be like in the in the winter and spring on pause and just wait and see. Dr. Michael Warner, our guest. Last question for you. We played a clip from um, Face the Nation yesterday. Uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb was on and he reasoned that what Pfizer is going to do and he discloses, as he often does, he's on the Pfizer board. What Pfizer is going to do is try and get the vaccines into pediatricians offices, utilize them in, in doses so they can fit in a normal fridge. Do you think we'll we'll get, you know, I, I haven't heard that in Canada, and I'd like to. Do you look and say anecdotally that we will just have more success convincing parents to be vaccinated if they're hearing it from their family doctor, if they're hearing it from somebody that they rely on for other aspects of their kid's health? He, he's skeptical, and I get it. It's the states, and they're a bit more polarized than we are, but the, the concept is, is that parents won't show up at mass vaccination clinics or even pharmacies. Kids could even be scared in those environments if they're five or six years old. Can we get these to pediatricians and family doctors and do it that way? If we can, we should, because I think you need to provide a variety of options for people. For the adult rollouts, we, we focused on, on mass vaccination sites and essentially cut out the family doctors. And I think that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've tried to rectify that. But for kids, I mean, that trust that you have with your child's pediatrician hopefully is good. And that, then you can get counseling in real time, especially because kids actually routinely visit their, their pediatrician for the shots that we're already used to getting. Uh, mass vaccination, I think for the volume game, you need to have those sites for parents who are just willing to, to, to get it done. But you need to have a variety of options and also need to reach out into communities that may have been disfavored by the, by medicine, by the medical community in the past, not treated properly, etc. And make sure they have local leaders providing 
you know, door-to-door, hand-to-hand education about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine for kids once the data is out. Dr. Michael Warner, our guest, thank you very much for the time. I know it's valuable, and I appreciate you spending time with uh, me and our listeners today. My pleasure. Let me start here. We got a ton to do today, and there's a bunch of stuff from Friday. You never know quite how to do a Monday show because you get you feel like you got three days to recap. But the Friday stuff kind of held in terms of prominence because it was something I thought people were still buzzing about a little bit yesterday. That's my experience anyway, chit-chatting with people in person, um, you know, wandering over to the gym. I went to the gym both days, and the gym and the restaurant and the bar that you frequent is now open full on today. Full capacity, no physical distancing requirements. I think I told you Friday I was out at two different places um, Thursday, both on the Esplanade. What a coincidence. Um, <laughs> but I went home in between, uh, so it uh, it made for you know a cumbersome day and a very sleepy Friday. I'm not sure Friday I was at my uh, physical and uh, mental best, but either way, we uh, we got through it. I think it was was not bad, but uh, but exhausted because of that. And people are going to, I think, socialize more based on this. You've heard of something being chicken and egg. Well, and I probably use that expression too often or use it a couple times a week too often. What ends up coming first? Will people gain consumer confidence and start to fill up places like restaurants and bars? It looked pretty bad. I was out Friday night in Vaughn uh, at Earl's. And uh, it looked pretty damn busy to me, so much so that they're like, we got we got no room inside. You'll have to go to the patio. But remember, they are at a limited capacity. Tonight, they will not be. I could go to Earl's, and Earl's might have room for me and uh, and not necessarily treat me like a second-class citizen. Send me to the patio. It's six degrees outside. I'm freezing. Does this, does this little jacket look like it can hold up? Um, and the vaccine certificate rule is being in place. So Friday had so many complexities with what Ontario laid out. As of today, you you still need a vaccine certificate, quite obviously. Restaurants, bars, gyms, casinos, bingo bingo halls are all open season, full blast. Other ones are are, are getting there. And the people that have suffered, we, we wondered about haircuts. Remember how long it took? When can I get a legal haircut? The underground black market haircutting industry was thriving, thriving during the spring and for parts of last winter. And then what about a wedding? What about a religious service? What if I, honestly, if for bad news percep, percep, perception, what if I have to hold a funeral? What if I have to schedule a funeral? Well, these things are coming along, but not quite where they need to be yet. But here's what is the strange thing, is that starting February 7th, vaccine certificate requirements were going to be, well, January 17th, I should say. And that's like... That's less than like 11, 10 and a half weeks away. January 17th, the government says, well, we won't ask you for proof of vaccination in restaurants and bars, in gyms and arenas. That's kind of contradictory to the idea of stimulating consumer confidence, is it not? You tell me if I'm wrong. 289-975-1640 on text. Uh, We'll take some calls on this later in the 8 o'clock hour. But I didn't love that. And if you're going to make this massive push, I hate the mandates. I don't like that we have to have them. Why do we have to have them, Greg? Well, if you ask me, and you just did, sort of, um, we have to have them because we've set ludicrous 
semi-unreachable goals in terms of um, percentages of the population that we apparently need to have vaccinated to get back at it and feel safe. And I don't think we do. I think we feel that now. But we're nowhere close to 90% provincially. We're not close to 90% in the city. And when I reached out and asked a couple of people who I trust in, infinitely with numbers, those people told me we're not getting to 90% until, get, get ready for this because you'll be shocked, or as in you won't be, we won't get to 90% by that January 17th date. So we're not going, if we don't get to 90% fully vaxxed in Ontario until late January, early February, and the government says by January 17th, you don't need the vaccine requirement, we certainly won't get there. We won't get there. And have we got waning auto, waning antibodies in healthcare workers vaccinated last January? Yeah, we do that also. And we'll need to boost them. I know you think, and I know you've seen some of the, how would I put it, um, defiance and uh, dispute from the United States about whether we're just going to do this interminably. You need a seventh shot, an eighth shot, a ninth shot. I don't think it will get there. But the third shot, almost looks essential for people who have more troublesome issues or based on age. So guess what? We're going to do something that we've done so little of in this country. Point out that older people are more at risk. Why don't we hear that from government health officials? Why don't we hear that from public health figures? You're way more at risk if you're an older person. I played the clip of it. Some of you thought, hey, that's great. Play more of that. And some of you are like, why are you giving that turkey the time of day? But Joe Rogan had CNN Sanjay Gupta on a couple weeks ago on his podcast, and they chatted for about three hours. I can't play three hours. I, I can't even play like five straight minutes. I feel that's sort of, you know, delving. I think that's too long to give you from somebody else's property. That's their intellectual property. But I can talk about what, what the response was to that particular appearance. And it seemed to be that Gupta was pinned down a little bit. He, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on Joe Rogan. He said, I went on because if I can change anybody's mind about getting vaccinated, I want to be there. I want to do it. I want to make an impact. That's a, and, and I admire that. But he also was pinned down a fair bit by the host, Joe Rogan, from the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. I mean, people send me the, you know, Joe Rogan said this this week, said this that week. I, I pay attention, but honestly, it's, uh, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't dissuade me from what I already think based on the people that I talk to and the stuff that I read and the numbers that that other people crunch or that I put together. But Joe Rogan asked Sanjay Gupta, he said, you are more vulnerable. And Gupta's like early 50s, maybe 52, 53. Um, you're more vulnerable, fully vaccinated for a bad outcome than a seven-year-old is who hasn't been vaccinated. And Gupta can't say no, but he didn't say yes. And we see a lot of that. We see a lot of that right now, don't we? But the concern when I bring back the chicken and egg thing is if things are going so positively, why would you tell people by 10 weeks from now, you don't need the vaccination? Why are we rolling out apps? Why are we expensive apps? Why are we developing that to track the vaccination status, you know, nationwide, especially for travel, domestic or international, of 36 million people for another 10 weeks? What is that? I know that there are certain things we want to get rid of. 
I've shouted and screamed about masks on kids. I'll wear mine till 2024 if I have to. I want them to be able to go to school without them. It's not the time right now, but it's close. It's a lot closer than you think for the doom and gloomers that were predicting 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 cases per day in this province when we're 300 and change. And a lot of those are positive, asymptomatic, vaccinated people who are popping cases. Why? Because you get the virus still. And nobody said otherwise. No credible human being ever told you that you can't test positive once you get vaccinated. Of course you can. But you're not going to have any kind of side effects or any kind of outcome. The other factor is that's two months. The January 17th date is two months before all the other remaining measures were lifted. Now, of course, I'm hardened by the idea that mandatory mask wearing in indoor circumstances could be gone by April. We could be out of this like completely by the end of March. This is ending. We're not in the middle of it right now. We are absolutely um, if, if we're a band on stage playing a concert, we're headed to the encore or we're in the first song of the encore already. You've already clapped and cheered and whistled. And, you know, the pandemic's back on stage to play its last few songs, probably hits, not a lot of deep cuts. And uh, and, and but it's almost over. You you do sense this, right? I saw so many stats. Uh, the poll I saw two months ago. Well, I think uh, the worst isn't over yet. And about 46% of 40, 42 to 46% of people said that. It wasn't half, but it was a lot closer to half than I thought. And I'm like, what are these people watching or reading? Where would they get this? <laughs> Have you not seen how it's gone through almost nine weeks of school so far? Nine weeks of fall? Nine weeks of some people being back in the office? Nine weeks of being out and about again? I'm out and about. I've probably been out, if you will, more in the last two months than I have in the previous 19. And part of that is the chicken and egg confidence I talked about. There's an old manager. He's dead now. But Yogi Berra was a was a you know world you know Hall of Fame baseball player, and he had this famous line. He had a lot of yogiisms. They were called, and he said that restaurant. So nobody goes to that restaurant anymore because it's too crowded. Think about that. Nobody goes to that restaurant anymore because it's too crowded. That's the chicken and egg analogy that we're going to get to at some point with COVID. That's what I saw with my own eyes on Friday night. There's a lot of people over this. If you just stay on social media, you wouldn't think that. If you just watched television news, and they've got a job to do, I respect it, you wouldn't think that either. But there's a lot of people that have moved this right along. I wish more people were vaccinated right now, but I would also tell you that not only are there a lot of fully vaccinated people running around right now, there's a lot of people who have had the virus, have not had an outcome that's been bad, and never even knew they had the virus. We don't talk about herd immunity like we were talking about it in the spring. Delta changed the game, but these numbers, to me, if anything, tell me we're either really, really close to it, or we're there already. Because this, you're not going to not run into the Delta variant at some point in time. You're not going to not. And maybe it did. Maybe it hit you and you've been vaccinated and it has no impact whatsoever. Want to get your read on it text-wise. 289-975-1640. When the government says we're going to lift the vaccine requirement in the middle of January, I don't know. I know why they're doing it. It's for political purposes, but it defeats the purpose. And it makes people say, I can hold out 10 more weeks. We can do anything we want for 10 more weeks. But there's a lot of people wondering, 
whether or not that defeats the whole point of all the progress we've made. And again, if you're fully vaccinated and you're healthy, I think your danger is over. But that doesn't mean you get back to doing A, B, C, and D, which you wanted to do. And we needed to get to these vaccination levels to get there. This is going to slow the concept that we can get there. Okay, Dave Bradley has your 8 o'clock news in a little bit. Uh, he's with us, Shiba Siddiqui with us, Rob Trevison with us. Let's play a clip. I want I want you guys to be able to react because I have a fully vaccinated household. You guys don't yet. Here's what Dr. Scott Gottlieb says south of the border. By the way, he'll be on our show in a couple of weeks. We're really excited about that. Here's what he says on Face the Nation yesterday about how the plan should go to vaccinate 5 to 11-year-olds. I haven't heard anybody say this in Canada. We'll talk about it next. Here's what he said yesterday. So Pfizer, the company I'm on the board of, is developing a tray that's 10 vials, 10 doses each vial, so that's 100 doses. That's small enough that any small to medium-sized pediatrician's office can stock the vaccine and deliver it. And in a regular refrigerator? In a regular refrigerator. It could be stored in a regular refrigerator for up to 10 weeks. It was, form, it was purposely um, packaged that way. And so the idea is to try to get it into pediatrician's offices because we know that you know, getting children vaccinated is a much more consultative endeavor. Parents are going to want to talk to their own pediatrician about that. And so you want the vaccine to be delivered at those sites. You don't want children to have to go to mass vaccination sites or even necessarily a pharmacy. You want them to be able to go into the comfort of their own pediatrician's office. So the administration has been behind that. So I'm so glad he brings that up. Sheba, there was an Angus Reid poll last week. Uh, 51% of parents plan to get the kids vaccinated ASAP. 18% say eventually. 23% say they won't do it at all. 9% aren't sure. But the way Dr. Godley lays that out, I'm like, yes, kids are going to get scared going into unfamiliar buildings. Kids are scared of needles sometimes to begin with. I haven't heard anybody in Canada bring that concept up that we've got to get the, the shots into actual doctor's offices. I don't see that happening. I see them going to vaccination clinics. And I do think that putting going into your pediatrician's office or your doctor's office would absolutely alleviate a lot of the anxiety and fear that these kids have. But in order to do that, I, you know, I have such low faith in my province through this pandemic. And it's probably because I have scar tissue from all the virtual schooling for months and months. <laughs> right. Really, that's yeah, what I it believe is. It. Yeah. So I, just the trauma from that, I, I just, I have very minimal expectations for the rest of this pandemic from my leadership. Dave, how would you read that? You had your little daughter home for a couple of weeks already, right? Was Did it end up being two weeks from no, daycare? It, it was uh, 10 days. So, 10, oh, yeah. pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. But uh, I, you know what? We, we've had a conversation with my eight-year-old, especially. My daughter just keeps asking for more snacks. So that's that's an aside. <laughs> but uh, my eight-year-old, we talked about shots and, you know, getting a needle and stuff like that. And he's cool with it. And so I think it, it ultimately comes down to the parents and sort of opening those lines of communication rather than, like, if, if the parents are okay with the information that's presented and getting their kids vaccinated at this point, if they don't have to find out more information from their doctor, then I think it's up to you to talk to your kids to sort of ease their fears, take them through it and say, hey, it's going to be fun. We'll get a treat afterwards. I just wonder if it's like anything else where you you go to your doctor when you say I something's going wrong with my body or um, there's something that looks strange or feels strange. You wouldn't go to a mass clinic and go to a complete stranger 
and say, hey, take a look at this boil on my neck. Do you think it needs to be lanced? Like, I, I know the needle's a little different, but some people don't feel that way. They 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 only trust who they trust. Yeah, I agree, but I think you're dealing with with black and white situations. You're not asking for anybody to examine you at a at a mass vaccination <laughs> clinic. You're just there to roll up your sleeve and get a shot. So it's, it's a quick and easy process. It's yes. just like going to get a test, too, right? And kids now, with being in school and having close contacts and things like that, I mean... Um, you know, you know, they go through the process and that's a weird situation, but now it's just sort of normal for them. That's exactly it. Mine were terrified of getting a test. I'm sure all of ours have gotten tested. I mean, one kid in, you know, in, in one of their classes gets a runny nose, they all get it. And then everybody's got to go get tested. Uh, so, so far we've had every, everybody's had a negative outcome from it, but they're terrified of the test. And then eventually they just got over it. Well, the needle's less scary than the test, isn't it? I mean, it, it, or the, no. sorry, the end result of the needle is less painful than the test. Right, maybe for all of so. Us. Maybe so, but I mean, my eldest, who's twelve, had has his vaccination. He came back and told them, scared them to death, and said, "Oh, they put it in your eyeball. Oh my! So God. good luck when it's your turn. You guys are gonna get vaccinated into your eyeball." They were they took off screaming. <laughs> Siblings are great, aren't they? Yes, aren't they? I think that, as we know, as we know from the Rogers family, Rob. I think that happens in one of the Saw movies, doesn't it? Is that one of that's one of no the idea. things? I've never seen. The okay, Saw. I think Sorry. that's that's what? something. There's a needle eyeball thing. I think in the third or fourth movie. That's what I was thinking about. It sounds. It doesn't involve anyway. kids. Yeah, no. <laughs> I always, I always tell my kids when they get a needle, I'm like, hold your breath because when the needle goes in, maybe you can hear the air coming out your arm, and and they they still have. That sounds reasonable. To, so that sounds scientifically backed. That's yeah. ridiculous. Right, so, and does that work? Does that alleviate yeah, any of the anxiety? To, totally works because now they're concentrating <laughs> on listening to hear if the air's coming out, and they forget about the needle actually going in. So yeah, it's, it, I've re-upped that that one a couple. You do times. tell them you don't have a medical degree. Do you, have to, do you have to show them high school science transcripts? Because I wouldn't be able to do I got well. My medical degree, a medical degree <laughs> off Facebook. What are you talking about? Right. Uh, from, yeah. From, yeah. From newscast. Did my own research. That's right. Facebook uh, University. The football team's not very good, but you get a lot of great information. I think uh, from the medicine world. Thanks so much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We appreciate it. If you could subscribe, pass it along, tell a friend, phone a friend. I know it's rude to phone people now as opposed to texting them, but do what you can to spread the word. We love having you in, and we'll be back with a live show tomorrow on Global News Radio 640 Toronto at 5.30 a.m.